0: Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge presented by Curriculum Track, a brief retreat from your daily routine to explore the latest thinking and practices for faith-based educators and instructional leaders from all over. Join us as we swap innovative ideas geared towards promoting your school's mission, and we'll keep the conversation as fresh as you like your coffee. We're welcoming Dr. Mark Eccle back to the Teacher's Lounge today. Dr. Eccle is a longtime friend of Curriculum Track and is both a direct and an indirect influence on many Curriculum Track schools and educators. We did a series of podcasts with Dr. Eccle a few months ago, and so I'll encourage you to check those out, but we're bringing him back today to focus on a specific topic. Those previous podcasts were more broad and far-reaching, and so we want to drill down a little bit. And it seems like Dr. Eccles can become a permanent fixture here on The Teacher's Lounge. Thanks for doing this again, Mark. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad to be back. Last time we talked about a wide range of things, as I mentioned, and today we want to focus more on the wisdom of approach or being wise in our approach to instruction. And so I want to unpack that with you a little bit. I've picked up on this as you make applications to biblical worldview and teaching biblically that this seems to be a pretty standard approach to you, maybe focusing on biblical integration more as a proverb rather than an epistle, so to speak. And I think that's really smart, but this is drawn a lot, not only from your personal experiences, but primarily I think from your experience as a public university professor and the kinds of conversations that you can have there. I think you're highlighting that right now in your teaching series at your local church about why the church should appreciate the university. And I'd like to put a plug in about that. People can find that, I believe, at markeckle.com But paint the picture for us. Why should we use wisdom in our approach or what does that look like? Why is this an important topic for our day? Sure. Everybody knows this. Our world is changing rapidly.
1: So we can talk about this in terms of ethnic issues or sexual issues or cultural, governmental, educational, it doesn't really matter. These shifts are tectonic. That is these plates literally are existing under our feet and they are moving as we speak. There is a constant barrage of new information, of new approaches to life. Just to give one example would be the chat GPT, the artificial intelligence learning system, which also allows us to write as well as to speak, which could mean that I won't have a job soon because they'll just plug in chat GPT and kick me out of the classroom, though I don't think that's going to happen. Ultimately, what was once accepted in the past is now passe, and it's considered to be outdated. And we could talk about that in terms of ethics, just in terms of foundations to education, whatever the case. But Ultimately, these kinds of changes have shifted so rapidly and in a culture that really begs for ethics that if we mention something culturally inappropriate, if we even question something, just asking a question can put you in the line of cancellation. So the question, I think, for Christian educators is how do we navigate this? How do we prepare ourselves to instruct in the classroom, much less To prepare our students for living and working with others with beliefs that are so different from their own. And then ultimately, what kind of content and methodology do we employ to help students think biblically about those kinds of ideas and issues? I'm sure we'll get to a lot of great discussion points here today, but we could do this every single week and never wear out the topic. That's how broad and expansive it is.
0: No, it's true. And I think it goes to the heart of what a lot of teachers are concerned with right now. Like, how can I be relevant? How can I be influential? How can I prepare my students for what's next when I didn't even see what I'm dealing with today? I think about the changes in education. I'd like to believe it was a short period of time, my short career, but it's longer than I realize at times. But yeah, I'm excited to dig into this with you. So we coined this term, or maybe you've used this term for a while. It's a newer term for me, that. The wisdom of approach. What does that mean? How do you define that? So if we would take both of those words, wisdom
1: from a Hebraic Christian point of view ultimately comes back to the book of Proverbs, wisdom literature as a whole. You mentioned it early on in the introduction when you were talking about this as much more of a proverb than an epistle. Absolutely. I agree with that. I think it is the way that you operate in the world, generally speaking, but more and more specifically... In 2023 and beyond wisdom actually if you go back to proverbs chapter one verses one to seven there are seven different hebrew words that are used for wisdom and the centerpiece of those words is the word holkama from which we get our word generic word wisdom and it was a word that was used throughout the ancient near eastern world so when the hebrews were using it everybody else knew what that meant and I think that little principle by itself is instructive. That is, that we should use terminology and use ideas that connect to people outside of our own little group. And we shouldn't use terminology that other people don't understand. We should learn and use terminology that the world at large uses, just as, let's say, for instance, we might in the court of law or in an economic issue or in any kind of business contractual issue. We all use these kinds of universal ideals. And so I think when we talk about education, we need to think more about how can we connect the wisdom of Scripture. And of course, that ends in that wonderful statement at the end of verse 7, that wisdom and knowledge begin with the fear of the Lord, picked up again in 9.10, the book of Proverbs. I think that's where we begin. We begin to see the wholeness of life from a Hebrew point of view. And let me expand that idea of wisdom before I get to the word approach. The word wisdom in the ancient world literally meant order. And so when the Egyptians were using holkma, different Egyptology, of course, than the nature and language of the Egyptian, nonetheless, they were concerned about order as well. Nobody wants to live in chaos. Unless, of course, you're the Joker and Batman, then of course, everything is open and things get bad quickly. But generally speaking, we like order. We like stop signs at the end of a street. We like stop lights. We like general laws that limit people's opportunities to hurt us, let's say, for instance. That's why we have law codes. So all of that I think is important. And there's so much more to say about wisdom. And I'll just make this general comment that I did a whole series just on wisdom. You can find it at markeckle.com through the video
0: series there. You use the term, I think it's not widely used, but I think it's really important to unpack this the Hebraic. Christian worldview, which I think is somewhat of a contrast. or It's very similar, but there's some differences to what we commonly use as biblical worldview. That's a buzzword right now in Christian education. Would you just compare the two and let us know why you prefer Hebraic Christian as opposed to, I believe, biblical worldview in your theology? I wouldn't necessarily see the
1: distinctiveness or the difference between the two. When we talk about a biblical worldview, we're talking about the 66 books of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and the source of wisdom coming from that. But the reason why I use Hebraic Christian is because I want everybody to understand that there's a first testament. That is that God communicated his word to a group of people called the Israelites, his nation of Israel. And that was the first testament. So that was the group that he communicated with first. The second group that he communicated with is the Christian group. That's why I use First and Second Testament when I talk instead of old and new. And I think it's important to highlight the Hebraic aspect of this first, because all of our basic understanding of thinking properly as Christians in 2023 is based on Genesis 1 through 11. So the wholeness of the scriptures and the wholeness of life and what God was communicated in the intention in Genesis 1 and 2, and that, of course, in the degeneration in Genesis 3 and following what we're still living in with today. I want people to understand that it comes from a Hebraic tradition and that that can be found in the first books of the scriptures.
0: I think that's important to underscore. Biblical worldview, I think, is very valuable as a term, but I think sometimes, myself included, we fall into the trap of proof texting using the Bible to proof text our way through our beliefs, whereas I think your term, when I've heard you use it, it sends the message to me that we need context. The whole cultural component that comes along with scripture is just as valuable as maybe even more so than those proof texts that we like to rely on from time to time. So I don't know if that's how you mean it, but that's how I hear it. And I'm like, ah, that might be a better term for us as Christian educators than biblical worldview if we've lost some of the meaning.
1: Yes, I absolutely agree, and it's the reason why I use it. In fact, I was just writing this morning in another venue on social media, and somebody was asking me about the veracity or the truthfulness of something as it relates to scripture, and I was pontificating a little bit in my response, and I said, all interpretation comes down to context. And then I said, the three most important principles of context are number one, context, number two, context, number three, context. So if you want to find out about something, you need to find out about it within the setting in which it took place. That's why when we study scripture, we need to find out what did it mean for them then before we find out what it means for us now. Yeah. So Bible studies that only ask, gee, what does this mean to you? That's really not the way to study scripture. The way to study scripture is go back to the text and find out what did it mean to the people on that
0: day. Sorry for the distraction. You're telling us about wisdom of approach. And you're about to tell us about approach. Go ahead. Yeah, oh, sure. From approach, you might get a kick out of this.
1: I actually do a whole session in my reading, writing, and inquiry classes at public university by helping students to understand how to come at communication or how to have a discussion with somebody and i literally use emily dickinson's poem tell it slant so for those who may not know the poem i'm actually going to read it because i think it's really valuable here it is tell all the truth but tell it slant success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight the truth's superb surprise as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Now, the key to that is that we don't force feed people. We don't come at people with a preaching mentality and set up our pulpit. Rather, we find ways to come at discussion points or opportunities for conversation where we're looking for a way in. And sometimes it's a word, and sometimes it's an attitude, or sometimes it's a news item. Or some event that's just happened. A good example of this in scripture is Luke chapter 13, where Jesus is accosted by some Hebraic people and they say, Pilate just killed a whole bunch of people down here and this is really bad. What do you think about it? Now that's Eccles' free translation, of course. Go check it out, Luke 13, (laughs) the first few verses. And Jesus' response is absolutely amazing. He says, You ought not to be too concerned about what's happened to somebody else, but I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you too shall perish. And then he tells his own story. And he says, what about the people down in Siloam where the tower fell on them and 17 people died? He said, I tell you the same thing. Unless you repent, you too shall perish. The whole point of that passage is that we're all living on borrowed time. And what we do with time at this time that we live in is what's most important. So back to approach. When we talk about approach, we're talking about a method, a way in, a bridge that gets me and my message to an audience that may be totally different than who I am. Now, here's where I could launch into a whole another thing about another session that I do in public university. In fact, it's the very first lesson where I teach people, how do you take your message, the thing that you want to say, to an audience that may be different than you, what bridge are you going to use to get there? And what I pound the pulpit on all the way through my course is tell stories. So, the highlight, I think, of an approach, and I would say this generally to Christian educators, is that the more you can tell stories that make a point,
0: the better off you will be. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. I think most of us feel like, and you mentioned this, the shifting in the tectonic plates in our culture where we feel, I feel like more than ever that I'm the minority. Christianity is a minority in our culture, at least here in the United States. And it's harder to find connections or maybe we enter into conversations more so these days, feeling like the person we're talking to is an opponent or is just naturally going to disagree with us. And yes, stories can be disarming and inviting, and so I think that's great advice. What biblical principles establish more Christian response when, when we do disagree with people?
1: Yeah, so let me pick up on your idea of minority because that certainly was true in Second Testament teaching and the New Testament. We certainly find that the church was in the minority, certainly persecuted throughout the first 300 years of its existence, and of course since then as well, right up through today. I think what's important for us, though, is to read books like 1 Peter, where we understand what it was like to live as a minority. Remember that 1 Peter was written under the hobnail boot of the totalitarian political system of Rome. So you just couldn't do anything that you wanted to in the nation of Rome. This was nothing like the United States of America today. If you were told to do something, then you had to do it. And if you didn't, then you might lose your life because of it. So what is Peter saying? he's very clear about being ready to have an answer to everybody who asks of you the hope which is in you. But the key words there are at the end, which often get misplaced or at least not read. And that is with gentleness and respect. So how do you come across to people? What tone of voice do you use? What body language? What facial expression do you use with people? What word choice do you use? So many stories to tell about this. In fact, here's just one quick one. I was in my semester this semester, I had a young man. In fact, I think he was the only Christian in both of my classes that I had. And he wrote this piece, which was very much of a pro-life piece and it was fine, but he kept using the word leftist all the way through his piece. I brought him up and I said, look, if you're going to have a conversation with somebody, you don't want to turn them off by calling them a name. And I said, that's a name. That's a name that's going to turn people off. And I said, where did you hear this word? Why did you use it so much? He said, I hear it all the time at my home. And I said, boy, if there's a lesson, certainly it is this one, that the kinds of words even we choose to use at home are important. So gentleness and respect, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm thinking about 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 to 26 which uses some of the same words, by the way, but the idea here that's picked up, there are other ideas, which include the idea of kindness. So, how do we communicate in a way that brings perhaps somebody to a place of conviction, which, by the way, is not our job. It's just our job to communicate effectively. It's the Spirit's job to close the deal. But how are we kind? How are we winsome? How are we attracting people to the gospel, Titus 2.10 tells us. So, I would say that those are some of the basic biblical principles of the how. What kind of message do we give off? As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, we are epistles known and read of all men. So what are people reading on us when they talk with us?
0: Yeah. And I think it's important to underscore for our listeners here that we're not just talking about the strangers that we might meet when we're on an airplane or out at the mall, if we still go to the mall. But do we still have vaults? I think those are maybe a passing thing sometimes. But these could be the very students we have in our classroom. The Christian school is not the bubble that it was even 10, 15 years ago because our culture is less and less biblical or Christian than before. So these kids are coming from homes that have a very different perspective. And so reaching out to them and preparing them can be a struggle. How do we prepare our students for what comes next? When we have to first of all, figure out maybe what false ideologies they're embracing through the homes that they're coming from.
1: All of that's very important. I really do highlight this idea that somehow we bear the responsibility as communicators. I see older Christians sometimes disparage or give dispiriting comments about young people. And quite frankly. We only have ourselves to blame if they're the ones who are bringing forward these ideas. Where'd they learn them from? It wasn't just TikTok. They live in our home. So that makes a difference.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we can't teach to the students that we wish we had. We have to teach the students that we actually have. But how do we go about preparing the students? So it's not just the changing culture that they're coming from but the changing culture that they're going into. So how do we go about preparing our students and teaching students that are living in this world of change? Yes. I honestly believe
1: that one of the great theological concepts that we needed to employ is the idea of common grace. So when we think about some of the ancient texts, this comes out of the book of Exodus, but also mirrored again in Matthew chapter five and then Acts chapter 14 where Paul, I'll just pick up on the Acts passage where Paul says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. We need to find ways to communicate the common grace that's essentially embedded within creation itself. Let me go back to the book of Genesis again. And I think it would be helpful and instructive. And I'm thinking here about just saying again to people, if you want to go back to that wisdom series on my website, in the first couple of lessons that I gave there, one of which was about the opening verses in Genesis chapter one. And those verses highlight at least 15 principles that we can find that establish baseline ideas. So I mentioned one of them earlier, the idea of order. There's another one, for instance, where God separated. That word in Hebrew is used, I think, four times in Genesis chapter one. And the idea there is that there are certain things like the sun and light, for instance, that have certain jurisdiction over certain periods of time and things. And so each one is designated a task to do. I think when we find those generic common things, and we know from a biblical point of view that they are literally embedded in God's creation, I think that's the way that we help train young people to think about this. A classic passage in this regard, I think, would be Proverbs chapter 8, beginning with verse 12 through the end of the chapter, where there is an emphasis on wisdom and wisdom is actually personified there in that passage. It literally comes to life and it begins to speak. Many people think that this is the second person of the Trinity in Proverbs chapter eight, but setting that aside for a moment, the whole point of Proverbs chapter eight is God saying, look, this is the way I've made my world to work. And you're better off by actually following the way my world works, the way I made it to work. So I think that's really something that we really need to focus on. I think ultimately we find ways or ideas that we can all agree on. I had a radio show a few years ago where I brought in two black pastors, two white pastors. They were both, all four of them, I should say, were church planting pastors. And what was absolutely fascinating about the discussion was that. As they began to talk with each other, because they'd never met before, and they were in the same room together, and they were all realizing, wow, we all have the same problems, and we all basically have the same solutions. We all basically believe in the same biblical principles. The big difference is how are we going to communicate our cultural context? And that was the big difference. So, nine out of 10 times, we're finding ways, at least those four guys were that day, of saying, hey, we're basically believing the same stuff. It's how are we going to communicate this? And I find that to be true in the public university, certainly in my conversations with my colleagues, certainly in my conversations with young people. But I do think that we have to find that common ground. I think it's going to be harder and harder, but I do believe we
0: still bear responsibility for that common grace. So it's true that are embedded in creation, the way God has designed his world's work can lead us to... Some common ground and help us establish that slant, perhaps to find common ground. I like that. I think some teachers, as we think about the students that we have and maybe the skepticism, agnosticism that we're going to have in our classrooms. I know I certainly experienced that when I was in the Bible classroom. It seems to rear its head a lot when you're starting to talk about scripture. Some teachers are a little bit afraid of losing control of their class. How do we offer grace? How do we? make a safe place for doubt, for skepticism, for concerns that students are naturally going to have. If we open the door to that kind of questioning, then we lose control of the narrative. We lose control of the conversation. What are some of the difficult questions that you would encourage teachers to anticipate or to be prepared for? What are some of the questions that you have a hard time answering?
1: Yeah, I'll answer the last question first, then I'll get back to the classroom. The two questions I think that are most difficult for me are how and when. I pretty much know what that is what I believe. From my vantage point, I know why I believe it. Some Christians don't, and I would certainly encourage that process. If you don't know why you believe what it is that you believe, that would be a concern for me. But knowing what and why, just assuming those two, my concern is the method that I'm going to use, the how, am I going to communicate this? If I'm in a conversation and from a classroom, if I'm speaking to an assembly of people and then the, when that's hard, the timing of communication. So I think in the public sphere, and especially I'm thinking about social media, those two things pop up. And by the way, I would just generally say about social media, it's a lousy place to have a conversation. So I think the worst thing we can do is actually try to make an argument on Facebook, on Instagram, TikTok, whatever you might have there, but instead find the way to be an encouraging voice in those venues, because I think that's probably going to be more attractive to people than having some kind of confrontation. Actually, I had a colleague back in 2020. He asked me, he said, you never post on politics. He said, I got to know who you're voting for. So I said, oh, that's fine. I'm happy to have a conversation, but it needs to be one-on-one and we'll do a zoom or whatever. And uh, that was great. We had a 90 minute conversation about all of that. But I do think it's better in some settings than others, but let me get back to the classroom because I think this is going to be more helpful for teachers. In the classroom, when I was teaching in the nineties, let's just take that place that you were at actually at Lenaway Christian school in Adrian, Michigan. I was there for 10 years. 89 to 99, and when I was there, one of the things that I was doing was bringing in pop rock music and playing the songs, let's say, for instance, if we were talking about the purpose of life, and we would play these songs, and in, these are ancient days, of course, we'd use the overhead projector, and I'd project the words up on the screen for everybody to see while they're listening to the music. Well, I think you create a safe space for people by saying, you know what, I listen to this music. I want to understand it from a Christian vantage point. You may not, but I'm actually showing you that I am listening to it. I watched this movie. I think this movie has an important message, one that I think is valuable for us. You may not see it the same way, but let's think about this. Just to give an example of this. I used to show the old Harrison Ford movie Mosquito Coast with Helen Mirren, which by the way, they brought back, the two of them are brought back now in the Taylor Sheridan universe. I think it's called 1923 under Paramount Plus. Anyway, sorry, that's an aside. But these two were in this great movie about a scientist who thought he knew it all. And that was the whole point. He thought he was sovereign. And so I would show this movie and we would discuss sovereignty within the context of that. I think the worst thing we can do in the Christian school classroom is to be afraid of engaging the things that our students are involved with. Because if we don't give them that safe space, then where else are they going to have somebody listen to them? Maybe you might be the best Christian influence they're going to get. Maybe you should begin to at least dialogue with people. I had students come to me. I'll never forget this. They would bring CDs, of course, now everything's digitized. But I remember this one guy in, particular, he would bring these CDs to me and he'd say, he'd whisper to me, hand me the CD. And he'd say, listen to cut number seven. And then he'd run back to his seat. And it was great. I loved that. And I, of course, listened and then we'd have a discussion about it. But he knew that somebody cared enough about him. And I think there's the crux of the matter, that we show care and generosity to students. And we make the point, hey, look, I don't agree with everything here, but I'm willing to talk with you about it. There's no problem with that this is what Jesus did. He went to the publicans and the sinners. He was with the prostitutes. If he was in our world today, he'd probably be frequenting a bar to have a conversation with somebody. I know that might be jarring for some Christian teachers to hear, but nonetheless, when you read Jesus within the context of the places he was at, he wasn't going to church services. (laughs) He was with the people. And I think that's really important for us to recognize that the people who are our closest neighbors are gonna be in our classroom.
0: I think I'm more jarred by the suggestion that we should be listening to secular music. <laughs> that might be a little bit strange to some of us. No, I think that's a great point though. Meeting the students where they are and being willing to engage with the culture. How valuable is that? And that I think is ultimately how you would describe. So I'm a teacher thinking, how do I bring this wisdom of approach into my classroom? I think that's a good place to start. What other advice, what other tips would you give to help a teacher just be more wise in their approach to engaging their students?
1: Let me just pick up on something you just said because I think it's the crux of the matter and that is meeting people where they're at. Who did we learn that from? We learned it from Jesus because that's what he did. And so we're literally mirroring his discipleship processes. When you think about Mark chapter 10, for instance, and he's meeting with this person Who is obviously a pagan thinker, who's obviously concerned more about material wealth than he is about anything else. And Jesus tells him, Go sell everything and then follow me. The guy can't do it. I have great respect for that. It would be really hard if that was your whole life wrapped up in material wealth and somebody told you to get rid of it all and go be poor someplace. Wow, that's tough stuff. So Jesus taught us to meet people where they're at, and I think that's really a crucial concern. But let me Fast forward to answer your question here. The questions that are hard for me are the how and the when I mentioned, but I would also suggest to everybody that Acts 17 11 is really powerful. This is a statement right after Paul and others are in Thessalonica and they are being confronted by hostile people who don't like them. Basically, they've turned the world upside down, which is the verse 6 in Acts 17. But then in verse 11, The Bereans are compared to the Thessalonians, and it says, though, that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they went to the Old Testament to see if what Paul was saying was true. The ultimate one-word definition for me of education is ownership. I have always striven to get my students to own their belief system, and that's even true in the public setting. My job there is not to proselytize. My job there is to help students to own what they believe. So... If I get you to the place of realizing this is not ecology, okay? This isn't something that you have to pare it back to me just because I think I'm right. This is the crucial concern for us as educators is to do what Acts 1711 is presenting to us. And that is to help students, give them the evidence that they need, get them to go back to find out for themselves if these things are true or not. Now, I did that in lots of different ways. When I was teaching in high school, there would be times when I would read from a novel. Let's say, for instance, from Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton's famous work back in 1994, 95, when the movie came out. And I was reading clips of this book. Actually, I took my students and 25 of us went to the first showing, which happened to be at midnight. And 25 students of mine and me are going into Jurassic Park because they wanted to see the movie that we had been reading about in class. And the great question of Jurassic Park is not can we, but should we? Of course, should suggest ethics and that involves a whole discussion point by itself. But I was never afraid to be invested within the framework of where my students were coming from. And this is where I think it's important for teachers to develop project-based learning. Today, when I'm teaching in the public university, I'm teaching in Christian venues, it wouldn't matter. I was always designing ways that would get my students to do project-based learning. I could tell you lots of stories about lots of different ways that I did that, but I'll just give one example of this. In the senior year of my teaching, I would have my students go to the public university. And back then they would take video cameras and stuff. Now they would just take a phone and they were supposed to ask college students questions like, what is truth? What is real? Who is Jesus? That kind of stuff. And they would come back and they would communicate this in the class. Everybody would do a five minute spiel, maybe do a little clip from their video and then talk about what they learned. It was then that students realized, hey, this isn't just coming from Echo. This is real world stuff. These are the kinds of people I'm going to be working with and living with in the future. And I better get ready for this. And so I've had so many students come back to me over the years to say, wow, the way you taught us not to be afraid of the culture. Don't think that this is something that we need to be concerned about or go hide from. We need to confront it face to face. I think those kinds of opportunities gave us the wherewithal to communicate in a way that was very beneficial for folks. And I think this is really true, especially for the Bible teachers. Junior and senior high, that was my venue. I started in junior, senior high. Bible teachers bear a real responsibility in the Christian schools. Not only to set the precedent for modeling what it means to do biblical integration, but also to come forward with their own specific personal and relevant applications to how are we going to do this with unbelievers. Now I would do it in a different way. If I were in the elementary ed, for those who might be listening in elementary ed going, okay, when's he going to talk to me? I would say to them, look, I live with a second grade Christian teacher. She's my wife, by the way. I don't just live with her. So we've been married for 44 years and we pair off each other really well, elementary and high school, and we both believe in storytelling. So we're always sharing stories with each other about, hey, I found this really great story in this great book. And we communicate in whatever venue we're in, she in elementary and me in high school and beyond now. So. All of that to say i think it's really important that young people get a sense that we shouldn't be afraid of the world understanding yes we're the minority but there's nothing new about that just read the bible we've been in the minority for most of the time in the bible don't be afraid of that and then learn how to communicate in a way that's going to be attractive to people
0: and that idea of ownership is so powerful it reminds me of proverbs where it says, buy the truth and sell it not. Own the truth first. And even in elementary, I think that's what we're trying to get our students to do. What is true? And let's own it and let that shape our thinking and our values and our morals and our future, right? Just give you one quick example of this. I started
1: teaching in a K-12 setting where I was teaching in 7th through 12th grade. I was also a chaplain of the school, and there were 250 kids in that school, K through twelve. And I bore the responsibility twice a week to have chapel K through 12. Just imagine that for a moment. I learned really fast that the best way to communicate to all levels was storytelling. So I'll just say that right up front. That's really important and powerful for us to remember that the storytelling aspect of communication is gonna be really helpful. But to the owning it part, I think in the elementary chapel, I'm thinking about one that I gave, for instance, which was all based on Genesis 1, 3, and one phrase. And the phrase was, and God said. And so all the way through, this is a primary chapel. Just wrap your mind around this for a second. Here's Mark. He's teaching pre-K through second grade in a chapel. And I figured the best way to do this was repetition. And so I would have them repeat this idea of, and God said. And the whole point was, God is the authority. And that was the one point that I was driving home to those little people, big chapel that had these very little minds going on. And here's Mark, who's teaching high school through PhD, and I'm trying to communicate. That's what I did. I focused on one phrase and one idea and gave lots of very practical examples for little kids that they fully comprehended.
0: Mark, I appreciate your wisdom, your experience. I always drink deeply from the water that you're pouring out here. So thank you for that. Let's shift. We looked ahead. We're talking about we we look back, we break Christian perspective, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. We talked about the constant state of change that we're living in, in the world today. What about the future? As you look ahead, maybe not necessarily prophetically, although I'm sure there's some prophecy that can be brought into this. What would you see as the future of Christian education, especially as teachers embrace this role to engage their students where they are, prepare them for an ever-changing future. What would you say to teachers today?
1: Yeah, I would say all you have to do is look at the period of time between the Testaments. So you think about this, Malachi was the last prophet, and the next prophet, Matthew, was not speaking until 400 years later. When we stop to consider that, Or take the idea of Israel being under Egyptian bondage for 400 years in the book of Exodus. Take either one of those, take both of them. What should we learn from that? If there is nothing else we learn from that, we should learn patience. So are we expecting this thing to be done in our lifetime? This thing, meaning, are we gonna see fruit from our labor in our lifetime? Maybe not, maybe not. Maybe the thing that we're doing right now is going to be something that's picked up 100 years from now. Think about this with any of the great scholars or thinkers or pastors or church people from church history. I am always bothered by, and I mean that word bothered, by Acts 13, 36. And Paul is speaking about David, and he's preaching, and he says, And when David had served God's purposes in his generation, he died. My responsibility is to serve God's purposes in my generation. That's it. Whether I get to see the fruit of that labor or not, I want to. I desperately want to. I'm like everybody else. I want to see something that's come out of my labor at the end of the day, besides graded papers and a stack, which, by the way, I'm actually doing right now with students. I'm grading their final projects. So, anyway, but back to the issue of prophecy, I think this is really important for us to get a hold on. To be prophetic simply means that we are speaking God's words, that's all that means. And so we need to recognize that our prophetic voice should be couched in ways that communicate effectively to our students in the venue in which we're at. When I think about the future of Christian education, I think about the classical model. The trivium method is very valuable. I think that's something that will, I think, gain more and more prominence. And it has certainly over the last 10 years. Homeschooling even when I was teaching K-12 Christian education, homeschooling was a really big deal. How can you work together with people that may want to ally with you outside, but use some of the facilities and opportunities within your school? All of that I think is important. I think generally speaking that we need to communicate both resolve and restraint in the world. So standing for something that you absolutely believe in, like, I make no apology for being pro-freedom and pro-life on the university. Everybody, all of my colleagues know, if you're going to talk to Mark about either one of those, you better get ready because Mark's putting his foot down. When it comes, however, to restraint, I don't get invested in the political arena. Let's just take that again as an example. I have very strong political beliefs and positions, but I don't stay there because I don't think that's where Jesus was coming from. So Jesus was talking about really important baseline ideas, and I try to keep mine really specific. So when I think about the ultimate end of Christian school education, I would say it rests on the two words that I believe in, that I operate on, and that is excellence and benevolence. So do I do my work really well so that people look at me when they look at the work that I've done in K-12, in university, in higher education, in my dissertation? Can they say, you know what, that stacks up from people from Cornell, from Harvard, from Princeton, that piece of writing could be read any place and appreciated. I think that's what excellence is. Benevolence is how do I care for people? How do I show them a great generosity and grace, even when they don't deserve it, which is, of course, the idea of grace. (laughs) Some of my students don't deserve it, but my responsibility is to give it nonetheless. So I think those two words, excellence and benevolence, if we operate in that arena, generally speaking, then we ultimately not only bear the responsibility of what Scripture is teaching us to do as teachers, ultimately then this forms a pathway forward for anybody who is in our classroom.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Eckle. This has been informative, encouraging, helpful. We appreciate your time today. Glad to be here anytime. Thanks for dropping by the curriculum track teachers lounge today. We hope this conversation helped you feel more connected to like-minded educators and provided you with a thought, an idea, or even just a smile. As you seek to do all that you can for all of your students. If you found this conversation to be helpful, do us a favor and rate this podcast, also be sure to share it with others. We would be grateful to hear from you with any ideas, questions, or thoughts that you may have. You can find ways to connect with us at curriculumtrack.com.